this is Bernard Fraser, and you're listening to The Essence of Cool. On today's show, we speak with Lynn Hansen, a Canadian singer-songwriter based in Canada's capital, Ottawa. She has released five albums and has toured Canada and around the world, both as a solo act and as one half of the Lynns, alongside Juno Award winner Lynn Miles. Hansen launched her solo career in 2006 with the release of her first album, Things I Miss. In 2009, she was nominated for a Canadian Folk Music Award, and in 2010, she won the Colleen Peterson Songwriting Award for her song, Rest of My Day. In 2018, as part of the Linz, she was nominated for five Canadian Folk Music Awards, winning both English Songwriter of the Year and Ensemble of the Year. On today's episode, she makes a convincing case for why the great Buddy Miller, consummate jazz pianist Keith Jarrett, and Americana singer-songwriter Patty Griffin are the essence of cool. Let's get started. Lynn Hansen, welcome to The Essence of Cool. Thank you so much, Bernard. I've been so looking forward to having this discussion with you. Well, it's cool for me uh, in a big way because, to be honest with you, I hadn't really heard of any of these three people. I mean, I'd heard of them. I hadn't really heard them. Uh, Maybe a little bit of Keith Jarrett here and there, but uh, maybe Patty Griffin on a Robert Plant record, but that, but that's about it, you know. So this the last couple of days uh, has been a real voyage of discovery for me. Um, but I, before we get into that, I want to talk to you a little bit about well, the, the concept. Here is you know we're we're finding artists who we believe are the essence of cool. What is your definition of cool? Well, for me personally, um, cool is somebody who makes me pay attention to what they're doing um, because it is just so interesting for me as an artist that I can't look away. And ultimately it will impact on my own creative process. Even if I don't end up sounding like them or incorporating their style of music, it's just something that is so, to me, it's just so, it's so excellent, but in a different way than I have been exposed to up until that point that, um, You know, I just, it's like, it's like a four-year-old almost, you know, like, wow, that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Some of the other definitions that have cropped up over the past many episodes are, uh, this is, I think this is something that either Paul Myers or or, uh, Blair Packham said, great talent surrounded by a shell of great stubbornness. Yeah, I think it was Paul Paul Myers who said that, which I think is a wonderful uh, phrase. But also, you know, these artists are often uncompromising. They don't care what the critics or the fans think. They push boundaries. They typically do the unexpected. Do those elements sort of ring true for you as well? Oh, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, when we take a closer look at, at the three artists that I even um, identify, I think those those uh, characteristics are very much uh, integral parts of their own artistic pursuit. How hard was it for you to choose those three? And I know you wrestled with one of them because <laughs> you had to arm wrestle Jordan Zadarozny for Prince. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to guess that a lot of artists probably pick Prince just and, and probably for a million different reasons. Right. Um, but in terms of my, uh, for me, you know, it's it's trying to really um, limit it to just three artists, and and I really wanted to try to pick three artists that um, that I didn't just think were just that I didn't think were cool, but that were really cool to me as an artist in terms of my own expression. In other words, they they impacted on on me as a creator, because I think you know it's it's easy to look at. Um, you know, an artist like, you know, I, I could, cause I mean, I could think of 10 or 15, you know, that are really cool artists and they do really unique and, and, and groundbreaking things. But, um, I was able to kind of narrow it down to three by saying, okay, not only did they do groundbreaking things from where I'm sitting, but it actually changed my own direction. And I think that's a pretty cool thing for an artist to change another artist's direction. So that's, that was kind of my criteria. That that is very cool, and, and that's the first time I'd heard anything like that uh, in terms of a description of cool. Um, and uh, I might steal that from you. That's wonderful. <laughs> so let me uh, take you back to a to a twelve or thirteen year old Lynn. What kind of music were you listening to, and how are you getting your music? 
Well, when I was when I was uh, younger, uh, I have first of all, I have a lot of older brothers and sisters, and not just a little bit older, but quite a bit older. Um, mm-hmm. So I was probably listening to artists that most kids my age would not have been listening to. So I was listening to like the Bruce Springsteens, and and people like that because my older brothers and sisters were listening to them. Um, so I was exposed to probably a lot of what I would qualify as like popular singer songwriters. Uh, from a young age. And I think, you know, that coupled with the fact that I was like a voracious reader, um, probably really, it cemented my love of lyrics. Um, you know, as I became a songwriter, I, you know, I'm, I'm a lyrics first kind of person. And that's probably why that that was so heavily ingrained in me was listening to that kind of stuff when I was growing up. Well, let's jump into Buddy Miller. Um, so I, I hadn't, heard Buddy Miller songs and I hadn't even heard of Buddy Miller. I mean, I may have overheard his name in a conversation about, you know, Robert Plant's band of joy, but I don't remember that. Um, so anyways, I spent a lot of time listening to his live performances and studio recordings over the past couple of days. And I have to tell you, I'm a huge fan now. He's amazing. So, so he's a, he's a singer songwriter. Um, he's a session guy, both on guitar and vocals. He's a hired gun as a live player. He's a producer. He's an engineer. How did you first come across Buddy Miller? So I was touring in Europe and, uh, it was actually the first time I ever toured in Holland. I think it was 2008. And, um, I was doing a radio interview, like an in-studio radio, radio interview. And the host handed me um, the promotional copy of Buddy and Julie Miller's uh, Written in Chalk album. And he said he had just received the um, the actual, the real record. So he had this promotional copy and he gave it to me and I threw it in my suitcase and I never listened to it for six months. And then I threw it on uh, about, you know, after I'd been home for a bit and I had some time and I just, out of curiosity, I threw it on and I... And that was really my first introduction into that kind of Americana sound and this absolutely authentic uh, songwriting. And it stopped me in my tracks and it, it really affected the way I heard music. How so? Well, it was just this, it was this gritty kind of like, and, you know, it goes back to this thing where you could just tell they didn't care. Like, they didn't care what the critics thought. They didn't, they weren't trying to write to please someone else. Mm-hmm. They were writing because this is what they heard. And uh, there were just songs on the record that, you know, I just fell in love with. But also the sound. It was like his guitar playing is just this huge, gritty. It's like you hear three notes and, and it's like, oh, that's Buddy Miller playing guitar. And, you know, you, you mentioned him, you know, being a big, big uh, session player and producer and engineer and all that. And and I think that distinctive sound is probably, you know, a huge part of why I think he's so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was going to talk about this a little later, but since you m- mentioned Julie Miller, let's jump into it right now. I don't know what it is, but uh, I've, I've seen him play live and I, I've heard some of his solo work, but together... Buddy and Julie have this kind of other sound, don't they? It's just, yeah. I mean, it's. I think she just brings this element of angst in her voice, and I mean, I can always tell. Like, I can always picture, like, you know, I can always say, like, I know that song. I know that lyric was hers. Like, I'm not. I know I wasn't in the room, but I can tell. And I, I 100% agree with you that together, like that's, it's one of the mo- most dynamic, I think, songwriting duos there is out there in the Americana genre, and uh, it's very distinct. There's um, somebody had uh, I come across uh, some interviews, and somebody had suggested that it's kind of a Buckingham Nick sound, which I kind of agree with. I don't disagree, actually. I, I, I and I, I think that's actually probably a really good. Um, that's a good comparison. Like if you're looking for some, you know, how do you, how do you describe it? Yeah. That, that's actually not a, I, I don't disagree at all. 
Yeah. He seems to really worship her as a songwriter, not, uh, not just as a p- performer. Uh, I preface this by saying uh, one of the interviews I heard, they were talking, and I think it was when they were um, promoting uh, the latest album, Breakdown on 20th Avenue South. Um, apparently, back in the, was it in the 80s? And before Buddy had even put out his, his first uh, album, uh, he was auditioning for a band that she was in. Uh, and he played uh, he played a song. It was a I think it was a Tom T. Hall song. And uh, she said, "Don't hire him." <laughs> but they hired him anyways. But <laughs> so interesting that they have uh, they got together finally, and uh, they have been together virtually ever since. Um, he all, he tells the story again about breakdown on Twentieth Avenue South. Uh, of getting ready to, he's about to walk out the door. And I guess she's been, she was housebound for quite a while. She has, is it fibromyalgia or something? Yeah. She, yeah. And I, I don't even, I, I think that, I don't even think she tours or travels or anything. Right. Right. And so they were recording uh, Breakdown on 20th Avenue South. Um, but in the middle, he was going out and still touring and gigging with uh, other people, as he does and has been doing for what, 25 years. And he was about to walk out the door, and I guess she just felt the need to want to keep him there, and she started playing this riff that turns into, I guess ultimately turns into, uh, I'm, I'm going to make you love me. Mm-hmm. And apparently he stopped dead in his tracks, turned around, forgot about the gig, and said, we got to record this <laughs> and they went and recorded it. So a testament to how much he reveres her writing. Right. And I think too, like just that story, that's exactly what makes him so cool. And, um, the, only, and the, one of the reasons I picked, uh, Buddy Miller was simply because of his impact on the entire Americana genre, like in terms of how many different people he's played with, um, you know, uh, Patty Griffin, uh, Sean Colvin, Emily Harris, like all these people. But I, I 100% love the idea that he would just say, like, screw the gig. Um, I got to come write this song. I, 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 I got to do this song right now. And that is it's just a story I love. Yeah. He does seem like a kind of Americana ambassador. Um, many of the live... Uh, live sessions I saw, he was playing other people's music. I and mean, he's no slouch. He's got, what, six six of his own albums, three, uh, another three with, um, uh, with Julie, and then countless others where he's collaborating. But he seems to really celebrate great Americana songs. Tell me about that. What, uh, what is it about him or what is it about Americana that makes him want to celebrate that very openly? Well, I, I think, you know, what what makes Americana Americana? I mean, that's the question that is asked all the time, right? Like, what exactly is the genre? And I think it's that authenticity. It's that it's that desire to, to, to tell the capital T truth in a song. So it's not about, you know, here's a story and I'm going to sing it and it's going to be sad or it's going to be happy or it's going to be whatever, it's going to be gritty, it's going to be tough. It's, it's about trying to tell something that's real, in the song, you know, and not shying away from that. In other words, taking it head on. And I think it's that authenticity um, that, you know, songwriters in the show, that's why we want to, we want to talk about it all the time and talk about, you know, it's, it's, it's the Nate, it's the importance of the song. Like the song is everything. It comes down to the song. A great song can never be ruined. No matter what you production you do to it or anything else, a great song rises above everything. And I think that, and it, it's not to take anything away from other genres. I just think that that's what is at the core of Americana. Um, and I think, I think that's what makes it different. It's just that desire always to, to, to tell the truth. Yeah. No matter how much it hurts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and one of the songs that, uh, he celebrates, in fact, I think he said he's sung it every time he's performed live, is Tom T. Hall's That's How I Got to Memphis, which is just, I mean, honestly, I heard him play it live um, on uh, one of the one of the YouTube channels, and I broke down at the end of it. It was just, it's not just the song is great, but it, the way he delivered it, too, was just beautiful. Yeah. 
what is it about Tom T. Hall's songwriting that you think resonates so much with him? You know, I think every songwriter is different. Like we all, we all pick somebody, you know, and, and I think we all have our own reasons for um, deciding that this is the artist, um, you know, that had a huge impact on me. And, you know, we're going to talk about Patty Griffin for me. And, and that's certainly, she's probably the most influential artist for me as a songwriter. And I probably have a different reason than another songwriter who, who would say the same thing because we all have our own reasons. So it's, it's really tough to say, you know, in the case of a guy like Buddy Miller, who to me is so iconic, you know, what resonates with him? And it's, it's, I bet you would be surprised at his answer. Right. We mentioned in the opening that he's not just a singer songwriter, but he's a, a collaborator. He's a producer. He's an engineer. He's a session player. He's a, li- a hired live guy. Um, let's talk a little bit about him as a producer. He is much sought after. And what is it that he brings to a session for like you know, Robert Plant or Alison Krauss or, uh, or Patty Griffin? What is it that he brings that is unique and uh, people seek him out for? I think it's just that sound. It's like a, that Buddy Miller sound. I mean, it's, it, I, it's like I'm not a mechanic. So when I bring my car to a mechanic, I say it goes thud, thud, thud. And can you fix it? And they seem to know what it is. I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly what it is in technical terms, but um, right. you know, it's like it's like any great uh, producer. Their vision is what you're going after. It's what you're chasing uh, and trying to trying to capture or have them capture for you and put that imprint on what you do. And uh, I think he just has a sound and a sensibility around him um, that really is a, it's a, it's appealing. Like if you like Americana type music. Uh, it's a sound that you just like, and uh, I don't know exactly what he does to make it sound the way it does, but, I mean, if he ever wanted to produce one of my records, I'd be there. <laughs> that would be cool. <laughs> that would be very cool. Um, and also, as a hired gun, as a hired player, um, you know, that I guess it's, again, it's that Buddy Miller sound. Uh, I was watching him perform, him and Patty Griffin perform with Robert Plant uh, in, one, in the Band of Joy tour. And there was, they were singing, uh, little, I think it was Little Angel Dance. And it sounded like, uh, it sounded like a Buddy Miller song. Mm-hmm. Right? It, sound, it's, it, it sounded, it could have been lifted off of Buddy and Julie Miller's record, right? Yeah, and I think, again, you know, great players don't sound like anybody else. They sound like themselves. And, you know, I've played with some, and I specifically, you know, would reference guitar because it's the sound, the guitar player's sound is what I know the best. And, uh, you know, there's these guitar players where you just hear two or three notes and you just know it's them. And same with Keith Jarrett. I mean, he plays two or three notes on the piano and I know exactly who it is. I know it's him. I don't have to hear anything more. Yeah. And I think Buddy Miller is exactly that kind of player. It's just like his combination of tone and, and effects and uh, note selection. You just, when you get the Buddy Miller guitar lick, you, man, you hear it coming from a mile away, two notes, three notes in, it's like, that's Buddy Miller. And you know, he also seems to have a real knack for finding the exact right interpretation of a cover song too. I heard him uh, perform a Bee Gees song to love somebody, and he somehow made Bee Gees uh, a Bee Gees song, a Buddy Miller song. How do you do that? Well, I mean, I think that's what that's what artists do. You know, like cover cover bands who are trying to emulate the band that they're covering. You know, they're they're trying to do their best interpretation of like. The Bee Gees, right? So if you're a Bee Gees cover band, you want to sound like the Bee Gees. Mm-hmm. But if you're an artist, you know, it's just, it's a song that you like, or it's, it's a song that you want to interpret, but you can't stop being yourself. And so no matter what song that you cover, you end up sounding like yourself playing that song. And I think, you know, that really comes back down to um, when, you know, when you think of a song as being a song, um, it doesn't have a sound because the song is the song. And so if I play a song, well, it's going to sound like me. It's just, it's just different words, different melody, but I'm going to, I'm going to do it the way I do it because I'm Lynn Hansen. And so I would never do it like the Bee Gees. And it, I think that again, when you have an artist who's, 
um, as committed to being themselves as a guy like Buddy Miller obviously is. Um, I don't think he can help himself except except to sound like himself no matter what song he's playing. Yeah, yeah. If uh, you encountered someone like me who knew nothing about Buddy Miller, what would you suggest as the introductory album? What uh, or what? What album, what piece of music uh, would you want somebody to listen to as an introduction to Buddy Miller? I would start with Written in Chalk. I think I think it's 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 certainly where I was first introduced to uh, to Buddy Miller, and that's where I would start, and then just pull on the thread from there. Because as you mentioned, you know he's played with a ton of people, and he's he, he's 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 all over a lot of music that's out there. But that's a great place to start because to me that's a that's a record that just it's going to be one of those records that's going to sound good a hundred years from now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the things we've talked about in past episodes is um, you know perhaps one of the ways to measure somebody's coolness is if you look ahead, say fifty years from now, you look back, will Buddy Miller still be considered cool? I I personally think that he will be, and I think you know. As an artist, um, you know, my aspiration is to be remembered, you know, beyond your own physical existence. Uh, I think that he's had enough of an impact um, that it would be very difficult to consider that, you know, that he would be completely forgotten. I mean, if we're still if we're still listening to music 100 years from now um, and this kind of music, then I would expect that, uh, you know, he'll be he'll just be somebody like, I, I don't know, like a. Louis Armstrong that you just, if you like jazz, you know who Louis Armstrong is. If you like Americana music, you'll know who Buddy Miller is. Yeah. What will he be remembered for specifically, do you think? Probably that like, probably his sound. I would, I'm going to guess his sound. It's just, uh, it's probably not going to be a specific song. It won't be a specific project, but I think just the sound that he had and that he, or he has, um, is what he'll be remembered by. On that note, I'm going to take a break and we're going to come back and we're going to talk about another person I knew nothing about, (laughs) but I'm glad you've introduced me, uh, Keith Jarrett. We'll be right back. Thanks for tuning in to The Essence of Cool. As an independent podcast, we rely wholly and completely on support of listeners like you. If you like what you hear, please help keep us on the air and throw a few bucks in our electronic tip jar. You can find it on the front page of our website, theessenceofcool.com. We truly appreciate your help. Now let's get back to the show. We're back with Lynn Hansen. We've talked uh, about Buddy Miller, and we're about to talk about someone who owns a completely different genre of music and uh we're talking about keith jarrett a real jazz master although he doesn't like to call himself that did you know that uh i did not know that actually but i'm not somehow i'm not surprised i'm gonna guess that he's just a musician in his own mind well he said there are no masters he said that we're all students Mm -hmm. but some students just work harder Well, I think, you know, it's funny because of all, whenever I've been around really great players, they're usually the most humble and they're usually very hardworking, but they're also the most humble. And I'm always very struck when I'm around people that I consider to be geniuses at how, you know, there's, there's, there's never this sense that they're like a master of anything. They just, oh, I just play, you know, piano. I just play guitar. And he plays a, a number of instruments masterfully, not just the piano. I, I saw him perform on soprano sax. It was a YouTube clip that was entitled Seven Times Keith Jarrett Went Into Beast Mode. <laughs> and one, one of them was with soprano sax, and it was, it was brilliant. <laughs> so for those who don't know Keith Jarrett, give us a sort of a thumbnail sketch of who he is. He's just—he's probably one of the best, you know, jazz p- pianists that have ever walked the face of the earth. He's a ridiculously brilliant uh, piano. To me, always a piano player. I, I know him only as a piano player, but he's just—he's a, a brilliant piano player, and he's not just a jazz 
pianist. He also plays classical music. He's just like just a ridiculously good player. And one of the things he's known for is crazy improvisation. He will walk up to the piano in front of 5,000 people, not having prepared anything, and play everything in the concert off the cuff, not having rehearsed it, not even having an idea of what he was going to play. How do you do that? Well, you know, when like I... I have a background of being around uh, a lot of jazz music. And to be honest, I've never known jazz musicians who, who are very good at what they do. I've never known them to not live in, 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 in improvising. So it, to me, um, for him to just walk up to the piano and start playing would be the most natural thing. And I mean, I, I get what that point is though is that it's an it's at another level because it's like everything just seems to flow through him but great improvisers that's what they do and and I think that's something that you know sometimes as musicians when we don't have a background in in jazz and improvisation we don't realize just how unplanned those notes are which is what makes it so remarkable when you listen to it and go like wow, it, it's never played the same way twice because it's improvised. Mm -hmm. Frank Zappa um, talked um, a lot about uh, lead guitarists who have their solos completely planned out and how much he abhorred that, that uh, a solo was, was meant to be complete improvisation. And, uh, you know, certainly Keith embodies that completely he says uh that music is in the air you either hear it or you're not listening hard enough and that you know his job is just to let that music flow through him I, do you do you feel the same way well i think when when you have the mastery that someone like keith jarrett has uh with his instrument um there are no limits. Like I'm as a songwriter, I always feel that, you know, my limits are my, like I'm limited by my limits on an instrument. Um, whether that's my voice, whether that's a, a guitar because I write primarily on a guitar. Um, but if, you know, if I had a, a three octave octave um, range, then any melody I could, I could sing any melody. So I wouldn't have to think about it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, you know, when you hear somebody like, and I've seen him live, you know, when you hear somebody like Jarrett, uh, when you see and you see him play live and you realize it's like this is in real time, it's because there are no limits to what he can and can't do without that, with that instrument. And, you know, in our, in Western music, there's only 12 notes. But when you really understand jazz, uh, you realize that every single note can actually be played and make sense when you know what you're doing. And when these guys are at the level that a Jared is at, there literally is, there's no, there's nothing that won't work and they make it work. And so you hear them play. And I, I always found that when you listen to him play standards, that was where I, you could really tell the difference because you know what the, you know what the melody actually is. And you know what he's doing to it. And you can hear it inferred, you can hear it implied, you could hear it hinted at, and then he would come back, and there it is again, just barely. And you realize just how brilliant he is, because I always knew what song it was, but he was never playing it that way. It was just an right. incredible thing to hear and watch. What, what was your introduction to him? How did you come across him musically? Uh, you know what? It was my ex. I mean, he was a jazz guitar player, and so I was immersed in this type of music because of that it was in my environment um i never would have sought it out but it it has had an unbelievable impact on me because my sense of melody was forever changed and altered uh my ears were altered by uh being exposed to this kind of music especially for a prolonged period of time it just like um every note that is outside that makes sense because you can hear it. It doesn't bother you as a, as a, as an artist, because it's like, Oh yeah, that, that note makes a hundred percent sense. So again, we, you know, it goes back to that idea of, of limits, right? We're limited by what we hear. Mm. Um, 
when you listen to a guy like Jared, it's like all of that stuff just goes out the window. Yeah. I was watching um, a YouTube video. It was a fellow who does a workshop on Keith Jarrett, sort of as best he can, trying to explain Keith's style, which there doesn't seem to be any one style. There are a myriad of styles because he's, because he's sort of hit by the mood. It's whatever strikes him at the, in the moment or, or wherever he is that moves him to choose how he's going to approach it. So it could be different as you alluded to earlier, it could be different every time he plays it. Um, but he was explaining that there is so much going on when Keith plays that there is whatever the right hand is doing, which is typically more melodically based. There is whatever the left hand is doing, which can also be melodically or harmonically or who knows what. And then he has this thing with his left thumb that is completely different from what he's doing with the rest of his fingers on his left hand. So Oftentimes, there are three things going on at the same time. Uh, why is it that we're able to listen to it as a fully sort of complemented or fully realized piece as opposed to all these different things that are happening simultaneously? Well, I mean, I think especially if you're, um, if you're immersed in, in jazz music, um, you, start to, you start to be able to hear the totality of what's going on. And so, I mean, it, 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 this might not answer the question, but I'm, I'm thinking of the time when I did, I saw Keith Jarrett in Montreal and he started playing My Funny Valentine, which is one of my all-time favorite standards. And he played like the first two or three notes. I'm like, oh my God, it's My Funny Valentine. And I just knew, I knew that that was the song, even though he had barely started it and he's improvising. So it's not going to be like any, any version that you've heard before. And he had yet to even hint at the melody. Wow. But, but you, you just knew that that was the song because you were, you know, as a listener, just being carried along in this experience of hearing. And I swear, you know, our brains and our ears are capable of hearing and experiencing so much more than what we could actually articulate. Um, and so when you just le lose yourself in that moment and just listen and let it wash over you, I think we're actually able to interpret a lot more than we think and, and process a lot more than we think. And um, so I think like when you were hearing all that stuff going on at the same time, um, you know, if you had to, if I had to try and explain it to you, I'd never be able to explain it. It's a feeling. It's just a, it's like an, ex it, it is literally like you're breathing in this music and experiencing it that way. Right. He mentions that he allows the music's in the air and he just allows himself to give way to it and that it takes him over. And that I think once he said, you know, he, he would never tell his left hand what to play because his left hand knows his left hand knows what to play better than he does. <laughs> Which, you know, a, a testament to the, just letting it flow through you. And I wonder if the same can be said for the listener, if we should just be allowing it to flow through us as opposed to actively listening and trying to discern one part from another. Well, I mean, I, I think that if you've never listened to jazz, um, starting with Keith Jarrett would be a tall order because it's, right. it's going to be, it's, it, you might, you, you might not like it. You might not enjoy it. I, I don't know because I mean, I kind of like, I was like a frog in a, in a pot of, of, of water that was slowly being turned up in terms of my exposure to jazz because, you know, I was, I was in a relationship with somebody who, who started to learn how to play jazz guitar and then progressed to become a very accomplished jazz guitar player. And so, you know, I went along that journey as a listener um, from, you know, like listening to the early bebop type stuff that you typically might start with to, you know, some really complex free jazz that doesn't bother my ears in the least. But I mean, if, if you threw that on in front of someone who's been listening to, uh, you know, popular country music, it might be a bit of a stretch for their ears. Um, it's not a, a judgment or a criticism. It's just literally like, that's a huge jump for you as a listener. If you, if you, if you don't understand like substitutions and how come these notes make sense. Right. Um, so, I mean, as a, as a listener though, like when, if you are a jazz fan, 
I think anybody who's a jazz fan should listen to Keith Jarrett. I do like some jazz. I haven't really, I listened to a lot of uh, jazz fusion in the seventies. Um, so it wasn't a complete surprise, but his, his brilliance just w- w- it was breathtaking, but he is almost as entertaining to watch <laughs> as he is to listen to. Tell me about, so you saw him live. Yeah. Tell me about that experience of watching him get into this so physically. Yeah, well, I mean, that's it. You know, as a live performer myself, like I've been told, you know, you play guitar with your whole body. Um, and I think that when you see a guy like, and he, he's obviously, he's no, he is no longer performing. He's suffered a couple of strokes in the last few years. Um, yeah. So uh, I think 2016 or 17 was the last time he ever, he had performed live. But, um, you know, you, you, it, I think he would even stand up a lot of the times when he was, playing he couldn't get you know he's so into it that he would stand up while he's playing the piano and um i'm not surprised because uh, his playing is just so you know it's so otherworldly that it would be exciting to have it coming through your body i think i think as a performer certainly i would be hard pressed to sit down if i was playing the notes he was just because it's uh you know it's just such an exciting thing to have that out in the air and jumping around so i'm not yeah. you know and i'm not and he, he also was a kind of like you do a lot of this um like when some jazz players when they're playing they'll sing the notes they're playing or they'll sing along and they'll be they'll be playing what they're singing right. and uh you know he you, he would do that quite quite loudly though and it was you know at times it would be kind of jarring because it's like he'd be making these odd noises uh while he's playing and uh you know, it's it's just so in the moment. No, it really is breathtaking to watch him, and and thankfully, um, even though he likely, as you say, he likely won't perform again, we do have uh, such wonderful recordings of his work. Uh, um, you know, both uh, visual and oral. Um, he says music can't be or perhaps shouldn't be expressed or delivered in words, which is you know clearly what we're doing here. Um, but how important is it to keep Keith Jarrett in the ongoing musical conversation? Well, I mean, to me, like, you know, even as somebody who's not, I'm not a, I'm not a jazz musician, but to me, it, it's, you know, it's very similar to Miles Davis, uh, people like Charlie Parker, you know, these are all musicians who push the boundaries of the genre that they were in. And also push our ears as listeners and as musicians, when you get your ears pushed like that, um, it sends you in different directions. And so to me, he's just such, he's, he's so brilliant as an artist and he was so unique and different as an artist. And I, I think it's probably because of, I, I, I'm such a huge fan of melody. And so what he would do with melody and how he would play with it and toy with it. It's just something that um, I think that, you know, uh, an audience, it would be a shame if you didn't listen, you know, even if you're not a classical music person, you know, when you, when you hear like a, you know, a, a piece from Bach, come on. And you're just like, Oh, that's so brilliant and beautiful. You know, it's not, I'm not a, I don't listen to classical music all the time, but when I hear something, it's just like, Oh my goodness, it takes your breath away. And he's, this is the kind of player that would take your breath away. And so it's somebody that I think, you know, everybody should at least listen to once. And I would recommend the, the record still live because it's just brilliant. I was just going to ask, what would be the moment that you would suggest that people listen to? But yeah, I would be still live. Uh, it's with this trio and it's just, um, it's a, it's, it's, it's a little more, to me, it's a little easier to listen to because of their standards. Um, a, a little more accessible is what I mean. Um, but it's absolutely live. It's a live recording, and it's brilliant. And so I think it's a great place for people to start if they want to discover Keith Jarrett. Yeah. And I think, that too, it really shows off his, um, I mean, as as amazing as a, an improviser that he is and amaz- as amazing a, a player as he is, he still allows the other members of the trio their own moments. He doesn't take that away from them. Well, those guys are no slouches. <laughs> they, were, they were pretty iconic in their own uh, in their own way. So, 
um yeah but yeah it's a, it's a, just a great record so yeah i would i would definitely recommend that one um on that note we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back and talk about patty griffin so stick with us we'll be right back We want to hear from you. Let us know what you liked and even what you didn't like. Have you got a show or guest idea? Well, drop us a line. Our email addy is info at theessenceofcool.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Now let's get back to the show. Okay, we're back with Lynn Hansen, and we're going to talk about yet another person I only learned of thanks to you, and that's Patty Griffin. Um, so she she's known for a what they say is I, I got this off the Wikipedia page. She's known for a stripped down songwriting style, uh, and I guess it's what we again what we would call Americana, uh, the same as Buddy Miller. Uh, she's won Grammys, numerous other awards. Her songs have been covered by all kinds of musicians, including now let me. Emily, Emmy Lou Harris, Kelly Clarkson, Sugarland, and Linda Ronstadt. Wow. So how did you discover Patty's music? Uh, Patty Griffin was a recommendation. So I think that it was probably about six or seven years ago. It was before I started writing for a record um, that I put out in 2014, River of Sand. Or maybe it was while I was writing for it and someone said, you need to listen to this person. And... And I did. I started listening to um, her. I, the first song, I think the first song I ever listened to was, um, long, uh, was it Long Ride Home? I think it was Long Ride Home. And it was the imagery. And and it's like, it was, again, one of those things where, you know, you listen to a song, and then you start pulling on the thread, and I started listening to, um, you know, her entire body of work. And the more I pulled on the thread, the more I just absolutely loved everything that she's ever done. It's just, uh, she's such a great songwriter. She comes to um, the music business sort of a little later in life, right? She didn't actually start pursuing a career until after her first marriage ended? I believe that's correct, yep. Yeah. And uh, I, But then, she, like almost right out of the gate, she gets signed by A&M. And uh, they they turn the demo tape that based you know that they based her uh, her deal on into her first record, Living with Ghosts, which is a hugely lauded record. Tell me about Living with Ghosts and why it's so special. You know, and it's funny because I think I, if I understand correctly, they did try to do a studio redo of that record, yeah. and they realized that they could never capture the magic of her playing. Um, and did, like recording this thing, I believe in her apartment because I know there's a one one of the tunes during the song song you can hear the uh, you can hear an ambulance in the background. Oh wow! Yeah, and uh, but I, I think you know when we if we go back to this con- this idea of of you know it starts with the song. Um, Living with ghosts is probably one of the it, it's it's not unlike Nebraska from Springsteen, you know, where you just, there's none of the, there's none of the bells and whistles. There's nothing that the artist is hiding behind. It's literally her, her voice and her guitar and her songs. And it's, it's, it, they will stop you in your tracks. Like you just, you're like, wow, this is so friggin' good. And, um, you know, I think that's what makes to her to me so unbelievably cool is that she could be playing on a ukulele and it would just you know she she's just such a good songwriter that uh you know i would just i wouldn't be able to look away i would just be sit i'd sit down in the middle of the floor to listen to her there was a word you used in describing buddy miller that i think really aptly describes patty griffin authentic yeah i think she's probably one of the most authentic uh, of the of the songwriters that I've had the like that I've listened to, um, I believe every single word that she's singing. You know, and it doesn't mean that it's her story. That that's not what I mean. I just I think that there's there's some artists who you absolutely believe what they're singing, and she's one of those artists. Uh, you don't doubt yeah. for a second that this character in this song is for real. Yeah, her second album 
it seems like a radical left turn because in often be sort of loud and raucous um then the title song flaming red um struck me as sort of early pj harvey really raw energy gritty and really loud guitars what do you think why did she make that left turn do you think well you know if you look at her body of work you'll see that she she often changes the direction that she's going in and and that's actually one of the reasons that I think she's so cool because um, I think as an artist, you know, I've, I'm, I'm kind of of the same mentality and I don't know whether it's because I've listened to her or whether it's just, it's just the way that you go about things sometimes, which is you just, you're not trying to make the same record every time. Mm-hmm. And it, a, a particular set of songs may demand an entirely different treatment. And so she'll have this, you know, she'll have a record that sounds really folky. And then the next one will be really kind of gospel bluesy. And right. another one will be really rocky. And and I love that. Uh, I love that variety. Um, and that, she, again, she's not trying to make the same record every single time that she goes into the studio. There's something that to me is always distinctly her. And the one thing that is always her is her voice and her groove. And those are the two things that make Patty Griffin, Patty Griffin to my ear, but everything else changes. And I love that because it does, it does mean, uh, you know, she's trying, she's always trying to, you know, expand as an artist versus just trying to stay the same. Yeah. I think we, we see that quite a bit in a lot of um, the real musical icons. Um, David Bowie, for example, uh, Elvis Costello, XTC, Iggy Pop, they are all noted for making radical left turns uh, at certain points in their career. And, uh, you know, uh, yeah, you're right there. I mean, the body of work has to, it has its own language and we have to capture that and not try to pigeonhole it, I guess. Yeah, I think too, as an artist, like you're, you're not wanting to sit still. And so, I, for, for myself at least you know I'm thinking I don't want to write the same song over and over and over and over again um, and so you know going back to this idea that like who are you exposed to who are you listening to who's pushing you in what direction and then you know if you do find yourself in different company like I there was those there were three songs on uh, Servant of Love which to me really felt very Led Zeppelin-y you know, I'm like, right. Robert Plant had to have impacted on these three songs because they sound like him. You know, it doesn't well, sound like Well, they were like a thing Griffin. for quite a while, and, too, weren't they? You know, they were a thing for quite some time. And so, and like, but how, so how could that not come into play, right? Like, if it's right. in your world, how is it not going to influence you? You know, if you're hanging out with a funk band, chances are your groove is going to change, you know? Right. And I think that's that's such a cool thing when you hear the imprint of other artists on another artist um, in terms of the of their sound. Like they're still them, but you can almost you know you can almost chart certain things and certain certain uh, collaborations that you know are happening by the nature of this little shift in their writing or style or something. Right. And speaking of one artist influencing another, Buddy Miller uh, has not only produced her, but he's toured with her, and they both performed with Robert Plant's Band of Joy, as you mentioned earlier. What makes uh, Buddy Miller and Patty Griffin a really good fit? Why are they so good together? Well, you know, um, I love playing. Uh, like I love playing with a great guitar player. And, I, and when I'm around a great guitar player, it influences me as, a, as an artist. So I'm going to guess that, you know, when you look at the pairing of somebody like Patty Griffin with a guy like Buddy Miller, it's just a natural dovetail um, because you have this guy who's, he's a great songwriter in his own, his, in his own right. Um, but he's just such a, he's just got this really earthy, guitar tone and approach and then you have this songwriter who's got you know she's a good guitar player on her own as well but she's got this really earthy voice that just you know just 
can melt you. And the pairing of those two things is just the most natural thing in the world. And I, and I think, you know, I think a lot of the times that great songwriters do uh, get drawn into people that are really great instrumental uh, instrumentalists because anything you can't do, they can. And so it just right. completes the thought. You know, I, I, always, I always think that, you know, if you put me in a room with a really great guitar player, um, you know, the, the merging of those two things makes one really great songwriter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you talked uh, a little bit about her making left turns um, in terms of the genres and styles of her music. And it was a fairly big left turn in, I guess it was 2010, uh, so the story goes that EMI's Peter York suggests to Patty that she should do a gospel album. And she agrees only if, of course, Buddy Miller produces it. Why was that an important record to make? Well, you know, what's funny is I don't see that as a stretch. Okay. Like when you hear, when you hear her voice and you hear her groove, like when you hear, the way that she plays the guitar, to me, that is not a stretch at all. It's a natural progression. I, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised at it. And, um, you know, you hear it again on on Servant of Love. You'll hear a couple of tracks on on that album that, you know, really show that off. And and uh, I think that we, as our, as our, every artist has all of those things that they listened to and things that they were drawn to that they might not play in that genre, but it's things that they love. And so to me, it's, it, I think that probably wasn't that much of a detour for her. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you talked earlier about the value of her abilities as a lyricist um, and which I completely and heartily agree with. I was listening to um, the album, the, her, I guess her latest album river. And uh, it was the title track. And if you'll permit me, if you'll indulge me, I just want to read a little bit of the lyric of that song. Isn't she a river? Doesn't need a diamond to shine. So people call you clever, but she's been here a long, long time. And she's seen so many faces and places down the line, been left for dead a million times, keeps coming home, arms open wide ever-changing and undefined, she's a river. I was bawling at the end of that one. <laughs> Do we listen to lyrics enough these days? Because we seem, you know, in this pop sort of centric world, we seem to be caught up in the hook, you know, and the hook doesn't necessarily mean listening to the lyric. It's just listening to that thing that really, you know, slams you in the face. Do we listen to lyrics enough and should we be listening more? Well, you know, it's funny. I think that there's, you know, there's this myth out there that we don't listen to lyrics, that as a society that we don't, we don't read, we don't listen to lyrics, we don't care about words. But I honestly think that it's something we're being fed because um, when I talk to people and I, I think that, well, you know, you don't really listen to the lyrics, right? And people will come up to me and say, no, uh, I love what you said there. Like, oh, I, I love what you're saying in that song. Um I think that there's um, there's a vested interest in the industry that is, uh, you know, Spotify and things changing every minute, every second, you know, things only being 15 seconds long. There, there's a vested interest in us thinking that uh, lyrics are so passe that you don't even need to bother. Um, I don't think pop has ever really paid that much attention to, to lyrics. I mean, when you look back in into the music, say of the '60s, that was, you know, that folk music was the pop of the day, and that just happened to be important then. But when you look at pop music generally, or say the last thirty years, the lyrics are not all like not so much the catchy chorus that you could sing all the words to that are really it's really good. I mean, um, when you look at at the lyrics, a lot of the times, uh, you know, they're they're not all that they're not all that strong because that's not the point, right? right. And and so, but I mean, I think that there's a lot of music um, that has continued to be produced and exist and be very popular that sits next to 
you know, um, those, that kind of, the kind of volume of, of music that comes out that is really, really strong and really, really great. And when you think about, you know, songs that typically like win Grammys and things like that, like I always think back to when I was, I remember I was driving back from Nashville through the night and I heard a Lady Annabellum song that, that huge hit that they had that it's a quarter after one and I'm a little drunk and I need you now. And I, I wasn't one to listen to commercial radio and I, I heard the song for the first time and I heard it and they didn't even get, they just got to the chorus and I thought, well, there's a number one hit. And I didn't know it had won a Grammy, you know, so you could hear even, even them, I could hear in, in that kind of music. That was a great song because the lyrics resonated. Who hasn't done a drunk call, right? <laughs> Late at right. night. Um, drunk text, whatever the case may be. And so I think at the end of the day, you know, it's it's kind of a loaded question to think that um, lyrics aren't important. I think as long as human beings are communicating with one another, lyrics will always be important. But I think the way that we express those lyrics may change over time. And I maybe that's the thing where we, you know, it's, even myself as a as someone who's say in a singer songwriter type of genre, I may pass judgment on a lyric and say and dismiss it. But you know what? If it's effective and it resonates with people, it's a good lyric. And so, right. you know, it's it, it's it, it's kind of like the jazz you know the jazz player who says, "Well, those the three chord song is too simple." Very very few really great players don't acknowledge that you know the improvisation that they're doing over standards were the pop music of the day and they're very simple songs they just they know how to dress them up right if that makes sense yeah what's the one song or album that you would suggest people listen to uh to familiarize themselves or to become become acquainted with patty griffin well the one song would be useless desires uh if you that song i listened to that song over and over again for about six months straight I probably listened to that song 30,000 times and uh, it changed the way I wrote music. Wow. Yeah. It absolutely altered the way that I express myself with words. Um, Okay. In in what way? Can you describe that? It's uh, it's the use of imagery. It's this idea that, um, you know, you close your eyes and you can see the movie and it's your movie. uh, So my pictures might be different than yours. But uh, it's this idea that, um, you know, you're, you're literally writing frame by frame of a movie. And it's the way I now see songwriting. And, and that was that song that did that to me. Uh, I was talking to Blair Packham the other day from The Jitters. And uh, he was quoting uh, Steve Earle, who said that songwriting is empathy. And that, uh, you know... The value of a good song is that it uh, resonates in in the person listening to it, that you're not sharing your experience. You're sharing your your experience in how it affects the listener, which I was a revelation to me. Yeah, no. I th- and I think that's a really astute uh, comment. Like it's it's that's exactly I mean, that sort of hits the nail on the head. Right. How would you say Patty Griffin is the essence of cool? What is it about her? It's just a combination of, you know, her voice. She's got this, like, you know, you'll hear her singing backing vocals on different people's records. And again, she's singing backing vocals and I can pick her out, right. you know, I could pick her out of a lineup. Um, but also I think just, you know, when you look at the type of um, people who have, worked with Patty Griffin, I think it's this recognition that this is an artist who's really special, you know? And I, and I think to me the the essence of cool was probably again, like of all the artists who made me change what I do and how I do it, it was her. Um, And it was just this incredible ability to be so real with her stories and her songs. Um, and it, it, I mean, I have no idea what she's like as a real life person. I'm not sure that I'd ever want to know because I've, I've heard that you never want to meet your heroes. Right. <laughs> Just in case they know they turn out to be not so nice, but um, yeah, it's just, it's just this thing. Like 
I can't imagine, like, I, I, I would imagine, like, she was, she's, like, the one person I would probably be nervous talking to. And I've met some famous people, and they didn't make me nervous. I bet she would make me nervous. I'd probably trip all over myself talking to her. <laughs> and so, to me, that's the essence of cool, right? Because she's one of the cool kids from high school that would make me feel like I was, in, you know, in, in, in four-year-old kindergarten again. So, she's got to be cool. Right. <laughs> On that note, I want to wrap up our discussion about Patty Griffin, and I want to play a little game uh, that I like to call Cool Not Cool. I'm going to list uh, a couple of artists' names, one at a time, and you tell me whether you think they're cool or not, and if you want to back that up with a bit of uh, commentary, please feel free. Um, Let's jump in with John Prine. Oh, very cool. What is it about John that's cool? Or was cool, I should say. I, you know, this is just, he's like the, the longevity, um, the brilliance, the elegance of his, of his, uh, of his songs and the influence that he's had on so many different songwriters. I mean, just the essence of cool. Like if we were, again, if we were using that criteria that, you know, you have an impact on your own industry, he's definitely one who did. So he was, uh, one of Gordon Lightfoot's favorite singers too. Um, let's jump ahead into Johnny Cash. <laughs> Anybody who's willing to give the finger to somebody? <laughs> cool on my books. <laughs> That's such an iconic photo. I love it. <laughs> Absolutely cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, Lou Harris. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Elegantly cool, though. Like, sleek. Cool in a sleek kind of way. Yeah. She's she's a sports car. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Plant. He was actually at one of my gigs in uh, the UK. Oh wow! So I would say he is cool for no other reason than he is one of the biggest advocates for people going out and discovering new music. And it just so happens that he lives very close to where I was playing. And whenever he is in town, he goes and sees the show that's being that's playing that night. So he was at one of my gigs, and just the fact that um, you know that's that's something that he does made him so unbelievably cool in my books. That's super cool. Did you see him while you were performing? I could see him at the back. I didn't tell the band the uh, the guitar was it the guitar? Yeah, the guitar player I think overheard that he was going to be in the room, but I didn't tell the rhythm section because I didn't want them to be nervous. Um, But I could see him at the back of the room. How did that impact you as a performer? Were you nervous? Nope, not at all. Because I, I I mean, I knew that if, if he chose, yeah, if he chose to be there, then I, you know, he obviously uh, appreciates live music and uh, I had no reason to be afraid. Plus, I mean, it it helps, helps to be a huge Patty Griffin fan. Right. Because yeah. you know that he appreciates uh, songwriters. I mean, I think the only thing that would ever make me nervous about having another musician in the room, and actually I, I was on the bill with Albert Lee. Oh. The only thing that ever made me nervous about playing, I opened for Albert Lee a couple times, was the fact that he he's such a good guitar player. I thought, is he going to think I suck as a guitar player? <laughs> but he didn't make me nervous because he's very nice. Now, was uh, Robert Plant, was he with uh, Patty at the time that he saw you? Do you no, know if they were still no. Together? No, she probably would have made me nervous. Uh, he was there with his sound man. Okay. Because wouldn't that, wouldn't that have been cool, eh? Oh, that would have been very cool. I always, You know, it's so funny. People say, like, what's on your bucket list? And I, I, you know, opening for Patty Griffin would be is on my bucket list. That would be, like, one of the things I would love to have happen before, you know, I hang up my guitar. Well, when when we finally finish with this lockdown world, let's cr- cross our fingers that that will happen. I hope that so. would be a, an amazing double bill. Steve Earl. Oh, definitely cool because I've read one of his books, and I think um, anybody who he, and it's a very he, a book of short stories, and they were very good. Anybody who um, who can like as a songwriter turn around and and write with just words and be that good at that as well is cool in my books. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, Linda Ronstadt. That's a tough one. You know, I'm not, I, I have to admit, like I know, of course I know who Linda Ronstadt is, but I've never been one to listen to a lot of her music. 
So it's difficult for me to really say whether she's cool or not cool. I mean, she certainly had a, a very a long and prolific career, so impressive for sure. Um, not, I'm not sure about cool. I'm sure, I'm sure someone is going to send me hate mail for <laughs> 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 Oh, me. <laughs> um, Lynn, thank you so much for spending the time with me today. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, it's been my pleasure, too. Thank you so much for uh, the conversation. Before I let you go, uh, your latest album is Just Words, released in February of this year, correct? That's correct. Now, I'm assuming that you, like everybody else, didn't get a chance to actually promote the album because of the lockdown. Uh, any plans for 2021 as we cross our fingers and hope that the, the vaccines work? Oh, man. I, you know, I was on tour in Europe uh, when the pandemic really exploded. And so I was one of those people that flew home on March 15th. Oh, um, you know, kind of last plane that was flying to get back to Canada. Um so uh, yeah, I didn't I didn't get much of my touring in. Um, I'm really hoping that 2021, um, you know, that uh, things open back up. Um, it's it's been a very difficult, very difficult year, and I don't think it's quite over yet. But uh, you know, I've learned lots of new skills since I've been locked in at home. So hopefully, when we get a lot, when we're allowed to move around the cabin again. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to at least, uh, you know, be, be back doing live performance, uh, you know, at least at some point in 2021. And we look forward to it. Thanks again. Really appreciate your time and uh, what a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks to Lynn for introducing me to three amazing artists that I knew virtually nothing about. Like so many other artists, Lynn is champing at the bit to play live again. But in the meantime, she has launched a crowdfunding campaign, she has two new singles coming out this fall, and an album to follow in 2022. Of course, you can find out everything Lynn Hansen at lynnhansen.com. Until next time, I'm Bernard Fraser saying stay safe and please support local independent artists. 